Hello, everyone. You're listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale startups. I'm your host, Ole Kujikov, and our guest today is Ayal Yogev, co-founder and CEO of Anjuna, an enterprise enclaves company that secures applications in untrusted environments from malicious software, insiders, and bad actors without recording. Today, we're going to talk with Ayal about his mission of closing an old data security gap. But before we get into all that, Ayal, welcome to the show. Thanks, Oleg. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on here. Um, kind of one of our one of our many international uh, type guests. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved in security in the first place. I guess I've been in security, you know, since I pretty much started my career. I've been in security for over 20 years now. And I, I guess I started in... Um, Unit 8200, which is the Israel equivalent of the NSA. And this is sort of where I got introduced into the world of security. Uh, and I've spent a few years there. And then when I moved to the, uh, to the, private, to the private sector, everything I've done since was essentially in, uh, in enterprise security. And I guess the more interesting thing is a lot of what I've done was I, I sort of always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And everything I've done was to try to sort of set me up to, to do that in the best way possible. And this is why, you know, I started as an engineer, but moved to product management to get some of these sort of, you know, both business and technical experience. Uh, this is why I've done a, um, sort of an, a three-month internship in a VC firm to sort of see what's the other side of the table is. And this is why I kept going back and back into, you know, back into startups. Even after startups I worked at got acquired by large companies, I spent some time at a large company, but I always went back uh, into, into the startup uh, world. Looking at your background, it was like experience after experience after experience, and they were all, um, you know, pretty impressive. And you have a pretty extensive product management background and, and experience doing that job. Can you maybe talk about like what you learned doing that, and and what you're bringing to the table now as a CEO with that background in product management and security? Sure, that's a great question. I guess. Um... What I sort of loved about the product role is that it's sort of right in the middle, right? You, you get the sort of the technical aspect, uh, but you also have uh, a very good visibility into the um, into the business aspect, and into sales, into marketing, into you know customer success, essentially everything that's going on with uh, working with the customers and, and with the market. Uh, plus, you essentially get to work with pretty much every you know aspect of the business. You obviously work very closely with the engineers, but also with the salespeople, with marketing, you know, and with all these other functions that, um, and then you talk directly to customers. Uh, to me, this was just a very good, you know, preparation for becoming an entrepreneur, which again is what I both loved about this role and what I thought was going to prepare me for uh, starting my own company. And now that you are kind of CEO of your own company, uh, you probably do this all the time, but uh, can you give me the elevator pitch for Anjuna? Sure. So I guess at a very high level, what we do at Anjuna is that we uh, enable organizations to securely embrace the cloud. That's at a, at a very, very high level. I'll be happy to go a lot deeper than that. That's perfect because we have the whole interview to, to sort of break it down. And I kind of want to start with uh, the, the problem of, you know, data security gaps. So uh, start us off with this. You know, what is a major threat to enterprise IT companies that no one really talks about? I guess the, to me, one of the biggest uh, threats, and I kind of see this, I, I don't think necessarily people don't talk about this. I think people know about it. But essentially, there's cloud security is essentially broken today. 
And the reason I say that is cloud happened extremely fast. There's a lot of very good reasons why organizations, you know, want to move to the cloud. They want to, you know, scalability is, a, is one good reason. Uh, being able to leverage the software stack that exists in the cloud is another one. Uh, we see people, you know, wanting to move to the cloud, to, uh, you know, for cost savings, even though that's obviously uh, very um, debatable as, uh, as we've seen. But people are, you know, moved to the cloud extremely fast, uh, but then security wasn't really able to keep up. And it's funny because we see that now with all these, you know, security uh, startups that come around, even around discovery, trying to even figure out what assets you have in the cloud as, a, as an organization and what data you have in the cloud. And most organizations don't even have a good, you know, understanding of that. But when it comes to prevention, the, the, the problem is even larger. And that is because what people are trying to do is they're trying to take the um, tools and processes that they had in the data center and try to move that into the cloud. And that's just a horrible fit. And the reason I say that is because a lot, a lot of these tools essentially assume some physical perimeter to, to protect the data. You know, let's take the firewall, for example. The firewall sort of assumes that there is a, you know, physical perimeter around the data center, right? The outside network is bad, the inside network is good. And then the firewall doesn't even look at the data once it's inside the internal network. And obviously for a cloud model, that's just not a, a very good way to do this because the internal network is not yours anymore. It's, it's owned by the public cloud. Um, another great example is endpoint security solutions. Endpoint security solutions assume a physical perimeter around the server. But in a cloud environment, you have third parties, you know, other customers of the cloud running code on that same server. So obviously that doesn't really, you know, these endpoint security solutions are not a really good fit for that model as well. And that's what we've sort of seen in the cloud. You know, it's you're running at this, you know, somebody else's environment. It's not your own servers. It's not your own networks. You know, you have the employees of the cloud managing these servers. They're not your own employees anymore. You have the third parties running code on these same servers. So a lot of the existing tools that sort of assume this physical perimeter are just not a good fit. So this this move to the cloud, it was very fast. And, you know, the security aspects of it, we haven't really caught up because it sounds like we're using a lot of the kind of old logic uh, in the new space. One example of a breach that's kind of infamous is this Capital One breach. Can you talk about what happened there in, in that case? Sure. So um, I'm not going to go very deep into the technical details, but at a very high level, what essentially happened was that a former employee of uh, the public cloud that Capital One is running on decided to go and access customer data. And she was able to use her sort of knowledge of how the, the infrastructure was built to be able to go and essentially get access to their data. And I think what this really highlighted was the, the fact that, you know, can you really trust every employee of the public cloud that you're running on? And to some extent, the public clouds want to be able to say to their customers, you know, you don't have to trust us. You don't have to trust our employees because none of our employees have access to the data. But again, this is not, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't the case up until very recently that now, you know, there are technologies that enable to do that, which is what, um, and I'll talk about what we do, but essentially this is, this sort of highlighted that problem. The fact that, you know, the, when you're running in a public cloud, suddenly the, the trust model changes and you have this sort of shared responsibility model where you don't only have to trust yourself to secure your data, but you also have to trust the public cloud and the employees of the public cloud which again was, was a major problem for a lot of uh, very large organizations. So what's the cost of these threats when, when you're sort of evaluating it from a security standpoint? 
Yeah, I guess to me the 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 biggest the biggest probably cost of these threats. Obviously, every time there's a breach, there's a cost associated with it, right? There's a um, you know a PR you know uh, impact. There's a loss of business impact. But I would say that the biggest cost is just the fact that there are a lot of workloads and data that organizations want to move to the cloud for all the reasons that we've we talked about previously. But because of the, that, you know, because of that security risk, they're not moving those workloads and that data to the cloud. And that means that they cannot scale as fast as they want to scale. That means that they cannot leverage these, the, the software stack that exists on the cloud that allows them to, to move faster. And I think this is really the, the big cost of these, you know, the threats and this, you know, shared responsibility model. And obviously there's a cost to the public clouds as well. The, the public clouds are growing extremely fast. Uh, but they could be growing even faster if security wasn't, you know, this major issue that people have to consider when they they want to move more sensitive workloads to the public cloud. So it's almost like an opportunity cost. Like we want to, well, there's obviously the costs associated with when a breach happens and how that impacts things. But then there's this opportunity cost of we want to move things to the cloud. There's all these benefits, but there's also risks associated with it. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost like you can sort of think of the CISO basically sort of sitting there. And the CISOs are getting a lot of pressure from their, you know, CEOs and from the board to say to say yes to the cloud because organizations want to be more agile. They want to move faster. They want to embrace these new technologies. But the CISO has this sort of horrible choice. They either say no to the cloud and slow down the business or they say yes to the cloud, but essentially assume a risk that they're not necessarily willing to, to assume. I want to move on to kind of the current efforts uh, that we have for, for dealing with security and why they might not work so well for enterprise clients. Talk about the solutions we currently have for, you know, data security in the cloud. Sure. So, so as I mentioned, what people are trying to do now is essentially take the existing, um, you know, the existing tools and processes that they have, things like, you know, firewalls, things like uh, endpoint security solutions, uh, you know, data leakage prevention, all these sort of existing solutions that work relatively well or sort of worked okay in a data center and they're trying to move them and, and use them in a public cloud setting. And that's just not a good fit because it is, you know, it sort of assumes some physical perimeter that used to exist, but just doesn't exist in a cloud environment. And to some extent, the right, you know, solution, the right solution to for security in the cloud is you want to put the perimeter around the data itself and not around some you know, physical representation of the data. And that's a thing that I think that sort of was always the right way to do this, but there was just no you know, good way of doing this. And now there's, this, there's been this uh, technology shift that allows you to finally, for the first time, put the perimeter around the actual data. And it's just the right fit for how you want to protect data in a cloud environment. So what's it called? And then how is this like putting a perimeter around data? How can you actually do that? So essentially, the, the way that this can be done is uh, through a set of technologies called confidential computing. What, what essentially happened in the last, and this, sort of, this was a big shift that happened in 2020, was that every major cloud vendor added you know, this set of technologies called confidential computing. And what these technologies do is they, they essentially allow you to, to finally protect, you know, to put the perimeter around the data, because they allow you to protect the data while it's being used. And this was always this, and you know, uh, we talked about this, you know, major security data security gap that always existed, and that gap was how do you protect the data when it's actually being used? Uh, you can protect the data, you know, when it goes to storage or in a database, you can encrypt it. You can encrypt the data when it's, you know, flowing around the network. But the one gap that always existed was what happens when an application needs to process the data. 
at that point it has uh, that application has to decrypt the data and that data then rely you know lies in clear in memory and anybody with access to the infrastructure can access it so what the cloud vendors uh, did in the last um, you know in, in 2020 was embracing uh, computational computing which is the set of uh, hardware you know hardware capabilities that for the first time allows you to protect the data when it's when it's actually used you know by protecting the memory itself now what what this allows you to do is to actually you know put the the perimeter around the data because when you protect the data in use you know the data is born in use right it's born in memory and when you protect it that way you can automatically protect the data as it leaves memory to go into storage or go into the network so it's almost like this perimeter that protects the data and follows the data wherever it goes so when we say something's in the cloud, that just means there's servers somewhere, you know, that are holding it. And um, from our perspective, you know, it doesn't really matter where they are. It, it, they're, they're sort of out there floating. And so the data that's on those servers, they do kind of have a, a, a sort of perimeter, but the because they're on servers and, and you can protect what you already have. But when you are streaming or, or streaming data to that cloud, that was not protected. But now today with confidential computing, it kind of is. Is that right? No, it's actually, it was actually st- streaming the data to that server is protected. That's protecting the data when it's flowing around the network. There, there are ways to, to protect data when it's sort of flowing around. The problem was when the data was on the server itself and you had some application processing the data, at that point, the data was just not protected. I see. But now with confidential computing, we can create this entire perimeter where before it had this gap. Exactly. And this was this was the gap. This was why, you know, I mentioned the Capital One breach. This was why employees of the public cloud that are managing the infrastructure essentially had access to the data because they're the ones managing these servers. And because these servers, when they're running, you know, and processing the data, the data is not protected. The employees of the public cloud, as one example, had access to the data. Okay, thank you. So confidential computing, is this what you're doing at, our, at Anjuna? Is this your innovation or is this, it sounds like it's, it's more of a industry standard or something the industry is adopting? Yes, exactly. So essentially what the industry has adopted is this, you know, the, this confidential computing set of technologies. And essentially this is something that was added by the hardware vendors themselves. This was Intel adding it into their CPU, AMD adding it to their CPU, um, and, and basically every CPU, you know, ARM has uh, a confidential computing solution in their CPU. And what the clouds have essentially have done, uh, they've um, essentially refreshed their servers to, to have these capabilities and built a software stack on top of it to connect it to their existing, you know, Kubernetes service and their existing key management service. And basically just fit that into, the, uh, into their ecosystem. Uh, so that, this was done by the industry. This is not what we're doing. What essentially we're doing is we're almost like the uh, hypervisor of confidential computing. The, the challenge that customers had with these technologies was one, every cloud chose a different underlying technology. Azure went with the Intel solution. Uh, Google Cloud went with the AMD solution. AWS went with their own solution called Nitro Enclave, which is based on their own hardware called Nitro. And, you know, every other cloud sort of uh, adopted something, you know, either those or, or something else. Uh, so that was one major challenge for customers because on every cloud, they had to do something different. And the other major challenge was that in order to use these technologies, you had to do a lot of heavy lifting. You had to go and sort of rebuild and re-architect the application to go use these technologies, which is something that, as you can imagine, no, no large organization is going to go and, you know, re-architect every application that they're using. 
So what we're doing, we essentially created this uh, uh, solution on top of the, on top of all these confidential computing technologies uh, to mon- create this unified platform to essentially make it look the same regardless of what's the underlying technology. Uh, and number two, just make it extremely simple to use. Just take any application and run it on top of any confidential, you know, inside of any confidential computing technology uh, without having to make any changes to the application. Can you talk about what that looks like when you're actually using your application? Sure. So this, uh, I guess it's the best equivalent is what VMware did to virtualization, right? The, there's, there are all these virtualization technologies within the, you know, Intel CPUs and AMD CPUs and, you know, in all the operating systems. And essentially what VMware has done is they just made it, make it look the same, right? You can just use VMware on top of everything. It all looks the same. It's super simple to use. This is exactly what we're doing to confidential, to confidential computing. And to some extent, virtualization was always this technology that people you know, knew was going to be extremely important, but it was just so difficult to use that for many, many years, you know, it was, you know, seldomly used until VMware came along to build that, you know, hyper, their hypervisor. And essentially then everybody started using virtualization. And to some extent, this was the birth of the public cloud, right? You'd never have a public cloud without, without a hypervisor, without something like VMware, uh, what VMware did. So confidential computing is this sort of, at least in security, this is a major shift in how security is being done. This, again, solves one of the biggest problems that always existed in security. So I don't think there's a debate on how important this technology is going to be. And that's why you see all these very large organizations behind it. You know, Intel, AMD, Amazon, Microsoft, Google. There's all these very, very large organizations uh, that are supporting this and are pushing this. But it sort of has that same challenge as virtualization back in the day which is exactly the gap that we're closing. So, you know, kind of along those lines, the technology is here, it's arrived for confidential computing and people understand the importance of it. Can you talk about why now is the right timing for your company? I guess the, the number one thing is this, this technology shift just happened, you know, in, in 2020. All the clouds have, you know, sort of noticed that what's um, one of the things that is essentially um, capping their growth potential. And again, the clouds are growing extremely fast, but they could be growing even faster if, if it wasn't for these security concerns, which always come up. You know, when you survey customers, the number one thing that comes up in terms of concerns about moving more to the cloud is security and compliance. And that's why the clouds finally adopted these underlying technologies, these confidential computing technologies. And now it's essentially in every major cloud. And that all happened in 2020, which is why, you know, now is the time for us to come and just make it extremely simple to use use these technologies. And to some extent, as I mentioned, this was always this huge gap in data security. But when you're running in your own data center and you can sort of lock the door and you have, you know, your own people working there and you can vet all of them, this is, again, it's a problem, but it's a smaller problem than when you're actually running in a cloud environment where you just don't know who has access to the data center. You know, it's, it's not your own employees anymore. You have other companies running code within that data center. It just becomes a much, much bigger problem in a, in a cloud setting. And so these technologies sound like they're just getting started, but um, what are some of the obstacles today to you know people adopting um, these confidential computing technologies? Yeah, so, so I guess that the biggest, you know, it's funny, but the biggest thing we run into is just awareness, right? People know that they have this problem. This is, it's funny, everyone that we talk to knows about this problem. Um, and it's something that we, uh, um, again, we almost never have to sort of explain what the problem is. Everybody is aware of that problem. Uh, what people are not aware of is that there's finally a solution for this problem. 
And I think, you know, education awareness is definitely one of the things that we're, um, and again, not just us, there's all these large companies uh, that are trying to, to push this as well. Uh, to create the awareness around this. And, you know, we're extremely lucky to have these very large players um, creating awareness around this. And the the other gap is just uh, knowing that there's an easy way to do this, knowing that a solution like, you know, the Anjuna solution exists that allows you to just run any application in a confidential way without having to to change it. And so for security in general, like how is confidential computing going to maybe change the space or improve it? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. And again, as I mentioned, I've been in security for, for over 20 years now. I think this is one of the major shifts that are happening in security right now. And then again, this is sort of regardless of what we do in Anjuna, this is sort of what drew me to, to start the company. But I guess let me give an example. I think that the, the, the last big shift that happened in security uh, was around the you know the public key and private key, you know, or, or people refer to as the public key infrastructure. And I'm sure you're aware of you know that you have now the ability to use uh, a pri- you have a private key that just you know and a public key that you can share with the world, and you can people can use the public key to encrypt things to you, and you can use that private key. You're the only one who can use that private key to decrypt the data and get access to it. This was a shift that happened, you know, decades decades ago. But what essentially that enabled is are things like trust on the internet. You know, without that, you know, public-private key, you couldn't trust anybody on the internet. So you couldn't have companies like Amazon. Amazon wouldn't have existed without this public key infrastructure. Uh, and security was always this sort of enabler for other, you know, bigger things. Um, you know, to to because you can build trust through, uh, through security. Um, and I think this is exactly what's going to happen now. So, so one, I think a lot of existing technologies are going to look very different with you know confidential computing running everywhere. I think encryption, the encryption space is going to look different. Uh, the key management and secret management space is going to look different. There's a bunch of things that are just going to, to look very different. But to me, the more exciting piece is that this now opens up the door to this next shift in technology to to sort of change, you know, sort of open up the door to technologies that we can't even sort of imagine yet uh, that are going to be available because of this. And just one thing that is starting, we are now starting to see, to see it emerge are things like uh, what people call multi-party compute. And let me give you a good example. Let's say multiple hospitals want to share data between one another in order to do some machine learning algorithm to, to basically you know, run algorithms on that data to come up with, uh, with insights. Uh, today, it's, it's really hard to do it because of regulation. Essentially, you can't really share patient data with, with, anybody, with anybody else and for a good reason. Uh, what confidential computing allows you to essentially do, or one of the things it allows you to do, is that uh, different parties can share data without exposing it to one another and run algorithms and sort of the aggregate of the data. And again, this just opens up the door to doing, you know, to, to you know, doing a lot of sort of uh, ML or AI, you know, much, having a lot more data in, in healthcare, in, you know, financial services, uh, in insurance, in all these other places where today you just, these organizations just can share the data with one another. Right. That's really interesting. Like you could get, you could do some processing of your own data, right? If you were some big hospital, you have your own data set, but if you wanted to run something against representative of the whole population, you couldn't really do that because you only have access to your own data. But with your, with your vision and with this confidential computing, we can sort of share things uh, and, and mitigate the risk of having all that data in one place in the cloud. 
Exactly. So, so all these organizations can essentially sort of, you know, uh, share their data without actually sharing the data with any third party. So no, nothing other than the algorithm itself has access to the data. And you can make sure that the algorithm only does what it says it does and not doing anything else. So again, it's sort of a way to build trust, you know, with these organizations and their data, which is essentially, you know, again, it's going to open up the door to a lot of other things. And again, I've started to kind of talk to people about some of the things that this, this technology will enable. And again, there's just sort of these, these insane things that people, you know, always wanted to do and just weren't able to, that this opens up the door to. But to some extent, you know, kind of like with the, the you know, pri private and public key, where nobody could envision, you know, Amazon or, you know, uh, um, online banking when this technology was born, I think we can't even imagine what's this, this is going to open up. Keep talking about that. Like, what's the reception like when you, when you talk about the possibilities here? What are people most excited to maybe use these capabilities to go do and, and, and what might it affect? Yeah, so it's, it's funny, like uh, what we see now are sort of the, and this is what, you know, obviously as a, as a, you know, as a company, we're focusing on the more immediate use cases, which the one that we, so I guess the top two are, you know, essentially, you know, embracing the cloud, moving uh, sensitive workloads to the cloud. And the other thing we see a lot of is uh, just expanding to new geographies. Uh, we talk to American companies that want to, you know, run, you know, they, they might have to run, you know, their, their code in China because they want to, you know, uh, um, they want access to the Chinese market and, you know, because of regulation or some other reasons, they want to run their algorithms in China and they're worried about the Chinese government having access to their data or their code. Uh, we sort of see the same with European companies uh, that want to, um, you know, service the U.S. market, but because of regulation, um, they just, you know, they might not be able to run their code uh, within, you know, American uh, uh, data centers. Uh, this sort of opens the door for them to do so because they can run the, the code essentially in any location uh, without having to, um, you know, without anybody in the, managing the infrastructure having any access to their data, right? So these are the most immediate use cases. But then when you start looking sort of beyond that, I guess the, number, the two things we see is this multi-party compute that I've talked about, that again, I think is gonna have a ton of implications, especially in machine learning. And the, the other one is just the ability to essentially run your applications and your code in any, any place possible without having to worry about, you know, who has access to the infrastructure. So think now you have your, you know, you have a machine at home, it's probably not using 100% of its CPU at any given time. Uh, so you can potentially sort of, you know, share that, uh, you know, you could potentially want to share that with someone, sort of sell it uh, so people can run uh, code on it and you can get paid for it. Today, you know, no bank is ever going to, to, to use that, right, for security reasons. But when you have confidential computing, this can actually be done in a secure way. So this sort of opens up the door of how do you share these, you know, these access, you know, capabilities uh, and share them. Another one is moving more things to the edge, right? Think of a, uh, you know, self-driving car as an example, or just, a, you know, a car today as an example. You know, back in the day, if somebody broke into your car, they could, you know, maybe steal your wallet if you left it in there, or, you know, steal your radio but they wouldn't necessarily have access to your data. As cars become more and more, you know, connected, there's more data that sits, you know, in the car. And if somebody breaks in, they can actually get access to your personal data, potentially. Running inside of a confidential computing environment means that, you know, breaking into your car would never mean having access to your data. That's interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, what does breaking into a Tesla these days look like? Yeah, no, exactly. It's funny, like, the, the first, I, guess, I think one of the first use cases for confidential computing, um, and I don't know if people, you know, are thinking about this, 
But obviously on your phone today, you know, your smartphone, you have your uh, fingerprint or face ID information. So what happens if you lose your phone? Would somebody have access to your fingerprint information? That's obviously, you know, something that's, you know, changing your fingerprint is something that's basically impossible. And the first use case for confidential computing was protecting exactly those, you know, those extremely sensitive pieces of data within the phone. So if you lose your phone, nobody can get access to that data. Yeah, I'm just hoping that Apple has that like encrypted in a way that it, it's not accessible. But really, I don't know what I'm talking about. So <laughs> you probably know better. Okay, very uh, interesting stuff. A little bit scary, but you know we got to be brave and continue. We've kind of talked about the, the need for this and and kind of the what it's going to enable, which is really exciting. Let's talk about uh, you know <laughs> the people behind Anjuna. Let's start with the team. So I, I know you kind of co-founded your company. Uh, let, let's start there. Who did who did you start your company with, and and why uh, are they the perfect partner? So as I mentioned, I, I was in the um, Israeli intelligence community in uh, Unit eighty two hundred, and then I uh, moved to the the private sector and essentially uh, um, did most of my career in product management. You know, companies like OpenDNS, uh, Imperva, Lookout, uh, and others. My co-founder is, uh, um, I've met him uh, about 20 years ago in the Israel intelligence community, and that's where we worked together for the first time. And he took sort of a very different path. Um, he ended up staying in the engineering, um, you know, realm and ended up, you know, uh, managing engineering teams and eventually moved uh, here to the Bay Area and did his PhD uh, at Stanford. Uh, where he focused on, on on security as part of his uh, his PhD, and that's where he ran into confidential computing for the first time. Uh, so then, once he you know completed his PhD, he was extremely excited about the potential of these technologies, and that's where we got reconnected to to start a company. I was very excited about these sort of the commercial aspects of what this can can enable, and he was very excited about the technology itself and sort of the security implications of it. So it was just a perfect uh, a perfect fit between us to go start this company. And how about the people, the other people behind Anjuna, the team? Can you talk about um, how you've assembled maybe the group you have today? Obviously, the, so the first people that you hire when you when you start, a, especially a company like this, are, are the, the is the engineering team. And for us, was essentially we had to build something that was extremely low level. We almost have had to rebuild the Linux kernel in user mode, uh, which it's almost that we had to kind of rebuild the Linux kernel in user mode to to you know to enable this. So we end up uh, finding people that are extremely low, you know, in the stack, right? If, um, you know, if somebody sort of is a full stack engineer, they were way too much, in the, you know, high in the stack for what we needed to, to sort of to start the company. And essentially what we're looking for are people that want to work at that level of the stack, people who would want to build something like a hypervisor, but then they want to work for an early stage startup. And what was, what we were sort of lucky is that, there are people that love the startup environment and want to work for a startup, but they usually don't have that many opportunities of working at that level of the stack if that's what they're interested in doing. And that's how we're able to get extremely, extremely strong um, engineers to join us because they were excited about the, you know, the opportunity and they were excited about working at the level of the stack uh, at an early stage startup. So that's the engineering team. Can you talk about the... What you have today, maybe how, how, how big your teams are and what teams are? Well, we're about uh, 25 people today. The vast majority is, is the engineering team. And then uh, uh, to, to lead the engineering team, we brought an extremely seasoned VP of engineering who has been doing VP engineering roles for well over a decade. And he's just, uh, his name is uh, uh, Stephen Lear. He's just phenomenal. He's just, uh, you know, the, the experience that he has in, you know, building enterprise 
products and taking them to market has just been amazing for us because the, 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 the customers that we work with are, you know, large banks, governments, these very large organizations and their needs are, you know, the, the product has to be at a specific maturity level to go work in their environments. So the, the experience that he brings to the table has just been phenomenal. Um, and then on the uh, go-to-market side, we're so lucky to uh, to uh, uh, work with uh, somebody called Bruce Fram, who's actually been a CEO of uh, uh, multiple companies in the past. And again, he was excited about the opportunity and what this you know, could mean for the industry. And he's joined us to essentially run our go-to-market side. And he's just been phenomenal. It's just, uh, I can't tell you how amazing it is for me as a first-time CEO to work with someone with that level of experience uh, and, and essentially almost anything, you know, that the company needs to do on the go-to-market side. Can you talk about uh, how you reach your customers today? Essentially what we do, we're a, um, uh, the, our sales motion is essentially top-down, which essentially means we go and talk to, you know, relatively large organizations that are, you know, in the, in the you know, moving to the cloud or have already moved to the cloud and know that they have this risk, uh, even though the, the vast majority, I would say, are, you know, on the journey to the cloud, which means they've moved some things to the cloud, uh, but they have some sensitive, you know, pieces of information or some sensitive applications uh, that they feel are too sensitive to move to the cloud. So they're somewhere on their journey. And that's a very, you know, that's when we go talk to them. Essentially, we usually talk to the, you know, the cloud security people within those organizations. And the, the way we reach them is either through, you know, the kind of regular outreach when we kind of, again, it's, it's not that difficult to know who are the organizations that could benefit from something like this. Uh, so we reach out to them and, you know, ask them if they, they want to talk to us and learn more about confidential computing. Or we actually have a surprising number of inbounds coming to us as these large, you know, very large companies are talking more and more about confidential computing. You know, Amazon talking about this and Microsoft and Google and Intel and AMD and all these other companies are talking more and more about this. We see more and more people starting to look for, you know, how can, how, how, how can they leverage these technologies? And that's when they uh, actually find us. Next, talk about the Confidential Computing Consortium. What's its purpose and how do you fit into that? Sure. Um, so the Confidential Computing Consortium is this essentially this consortium of, of companies. And again, I mentioned some of them, all these large organizations like uh, Microsoft and Intel and AMD and Google, um, Alibaba, you know, all these large, you know, cloud providers, uh, CPU vendors that are, you know, part of building these, these confidential computing technologies and a lot of other companies in the space, like, you know, like us, like Anjuna. And we essentially work together mostly to increase, you know, awareness and, and kind of make sure that people know that this, this exists and they now have sort of a better way of protecting their data. And they can now do things that they just didn't think were possible because security didn't allow it. Now there's a security solution that enables them to, you know, to move more sensitive data to the cloud, for example, or to do this, you know, multi-party compute that we've talked about. So essentially, that's the um, the goal of the consortium, and we're you know extremely happy to work with with all these organizations on you know basically getting the word out the word out there. Can you talk about like your place because you're not as big as maybe some of those other companies you mentioned, and you serve a different purpose, right? Not on the hardware side, but uh, but how how exactly do you fit in? You know, we're a software solution. Again, we're sort of the hypervisor of confidential computing. So yeah, we're not the, you know, we're not like the hardware vendors. We're not like the clouds. We're this layer on top of it. And similar to us, there's a bunch of other companies. There are other, you know, 
using this to solve other problems or you know direct competitors of ours that are also part of the the consortium uh, but again this is sort of a stage in the market where i think everybody has this sort of common goal of just getting the word out there to, to make sure that people know that this uh, solution exists uh, which is why you know that's why you see you know google cloud and you know microsoft azure working together as part of the consortium to get the word out there this is why intel and amd are both part of the consortium to to get the word out there um, everybody is essentially the where we sort of are in the market now is, is a place where we just uh, are all working together to make sure people are uh, aware of this. Okay, so we'll start to wrap up here uh, with some more big picture questions uh, about yourself. So um, just tell me what it's like being an entrepreneur. Uh, it seems like something you probably dreamed about doing for a long time, given your background and uh, sort of the choices you made before starting your company. So now that it's official and you've been doing it for uh, a couple of years, What's it like being an entrepreneur? Yeah, it's funny. Like, um, I guess it's very, very similar to to having a kid <laughs> to some extent. Because I, I have two kids. And, you know, when I had my first, I had a lot of friends who were, you know, they didn't have kids yet. They asked me, you know, what it's like having a kid. And what I told them is that it just makes everything more extreme, right? Like the, the good is just, you know, you, you never imagined, you know, loving someone that much. It's just sort of this, this amazing feeling that you didn't even, you know, you never felt before. Uh, but then also you find yourself at like 3 a.m. in the morning with, you know, a leaky diaper having to like, and you, f- you feel like, why, like, <laughs> why did I put myself in this situation? Like, why did I, did I do this to myself? Uh, right. So being an entrepreneur is sort of like that, right? The, everything is a lot more extreme. Like the goods are just amazing. When things go well, it's just, you know, the, the most amazing feeling, you know, in the world. It's something that you've built and you put together and it's amazing. But when things don't go well, like it's, you know, it's. I feel like it's all on you, right? The sort of the, the box stops here, right? It's it's you and you have all these people that are relying on you. And when things go well, like the, again, I've, I'd say I'm pretty, you know, resilient to some extent. I never had, you know, sleepless nights, you know, working at, you know, I've worked at startups, large companies. I was an executive at a, at a startup. I, I never, you know, lost sleep, you know, about work until I started my own company. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hate to make you do this, but is it is it higher highs and lower lows than having a kid? I mean, there's so many people <laughs> depending on you. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, uh, that's a good question. It's, uh, it's just so different. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Definitely sort of. Yeah, definitely sort of stretches you to the you know to the max. You know, <laughs> both these experiences sort of stretch you to the max. For sure. Uh, how about this? Um, whatever you're comfor- comfortable sharing, um, talk about your highest high as an entrepreneur and then tell me um, your lowest low. So what's like the, the best feeling you had uh, as, a, as a CEO due to something you did? Um, and then we'll, then we'll go to the low. Yeah, I guess the, oh, God, there's so many, it's hard for <laughs> me to choose sort of what's the highest high, but I'll, I'll tell you about a, a couple of things that I thought were, were great. Sure. I guess the sort of, Closing the, the first customer was definitely a, a high. And, you know, having somebody, you know, using the product, using it in production, you know, creating real value to people and sort of getting the feedback, you know, the, this extreme positive feedback, this was just phenomenal. And this is something that, you know, obviously not just, you know, me, but, you know, that the, the, was sort of, you know, part in building is just, uh, again, an amazing, amazing feeling. Uh, so I'd say this was definitely one of the, the highs for me. And in terms of the uh, um, the lowest low, uh, God, there's just so <laughs> there's just so many. I'd say it's like you know, it's fun. Like I, I would definitely recommend this to anybody to go go start your company. It's again, it's an amazing feeling. 
and I'll, I'll tell you kind of why I went, but like it's, it's 90% lows <laughs> to be completely honest and like 10% highs. So, uh, but I guess one of the biggest one for me, and it's funny, I think you get sort of desensitized that things sort of progress, but to me, one of the lowest lows where we, my co-founder and I, you know, we, we raised our seed funding and we sort of had this, you know, few millions in the bank and we're saying, you know, let's, let's, let's go. Like we wanted to sort of start going, start building something. And, you know, we're obviously, you know, starting to hire engineers. And we found this amazing, amazing engineer that we're extremely excited about. And he was, you know, going to be our first hire. And he already, he signed the contract. He, you know, it was, we had the start date, everything. He actually started working sort of nights and weekends on the, um, you know, learning about what, you know, the technology and what we're uh, going to build. And then he gave notice that his, uh, you know, his, uh, um, the company was working at. And they decided to double his salary to keep him. And yeah, like less than two weeks before he was supposed to start, he came back to us and said, listen, like there, you know, this just doesn't make any sense for me to leave now. And this was just like, looking back, it wasn't that big. And we found other amazing engineers. It was fine. But I remember like not sleeping that night, like that night. And this was definitely a, yeah. And again, as you grow, you do sort of bigger and bigger things, you know, that, that happen. But I think you get sort of the sense that it was just as we were starting, this was sort of the first, you know, major things, thing that we really wanted and didn't happen so right right like um, one of those early things that didn't happen it's probably more memorable than the ones that came <laughs> after it <laughs> exactly exactly okay so last question here what's the most important thing for you when you're building your company when you set out like what was what was the most important thing yeah i guess there's two things one is creating you know real value um, and I think that's why you want to start a company, right? You want to create a real value to your, you know, to your customers, to the world. I think that was definitely one of it. And the other thing was the the culture. I, I think company culture is one of the the most important things. And I think this is sort of what sets aside, you know, very, you know, great companies that are sort of fun to work, you know, to 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 be a part of. And then companies that are, you know, not as fun to be a part of. And to me, like, I've worked at companies where it had amazing culture. I worked at companies that had, you know, not as amazing culture. And I always knew that this was something that's going to be extremely critical for me uh, when I start my own company. And I guess the, I think the best, you know, the, the most interesting thing I've heard about that, that I'm trying to sort of, uh, um, you know, sort of copy or mirror uh, was something that uh, Eric Yuan of Zoom said. So I was sort of fortunate enough to hear him speak at a, at a conference, you know, before, you know, COVID. And what he said about culture is that, you know, you have all these companies with these, you know, 10, you know, things about, you know, we do this and we do that. And that's important for us. And, you know, all these, and he said, nobody remembers the, these 10 things, right? It's just too much. And he said, for them, culture is essentially one word. Uh, and, and that word is care. So, yeah, we care about our employees. We care about our customers, you know, and he sort of thinks about everything through that lens, and I thought that was just, you know, the, the perfect, you know, way to sort of sum up the, the kind of culture that I wanted to build for my company. And I sort of adopted that as well. And this is the, this is essentially what sort of symbolizes our culture as well. And just every decision that I have to, that I have to make, I'm, I'm trying to look at it through that lens. Can you talk about yeah how you do that in practice? Maybe an example or, or when you're yeah. evaluating a decision, how you, how you have that criteria in the back of your mind? That makes sense as a question. 
Yeah, so I, I guess uh, let me give you two examples. One is when you talk about, you know, uh, um, customers, right? You want to make sure that you do what's right, you know, by your customer. You want to create, you know, real value to them. It's not about sort of maximizing the, necessarily maximizing the revenue, for example, or, you know, ma- you know, it's about how do you actually do something that, you know, that is, um, you know, that creates real value to them and really helps them achieve something that they want to achieve. And it's always through that lens. And again, sometimes you have hard decisions to make because of this, but you know, when you th- once you think about it this way, it just becomes very clear what's the right way to do this. And so the same with employees, right? Um, again, one example that just comes to mind, let's say you decide to, uh, you know, um, separate with an employee. And again, maybe they're not, you know, a good, a good fit for some reason, but how do you do it in a way that, you know, kind of gives them, and again, sometimes it's not their fault that they might be, you know, an amazing you know, they might be amazing at what they do, but they're just not a good fit for the company because of the stage it's in or because of something else. But so how do you sort of do this in a way that is the most respectful way possible? How do you make sure that you sort of take care of them, you know, through through this transition that they're going through? Um, and again, you sort of think every decision that you make, you sort of think about, you know, how to do the right thing by the people that you work with, you know, by your, your customers, and everyone else that you that you're you know that you you know touch or are in contact with. Yeah, great thoughts from, uh, from from the CEO of a technology company. Be human, care about the human things. Um, <laughs> sure. All right, all right. On those good words, uh, we're gonna end the show there. If if you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and send us your feedback uh, to info at angelnears.com. I all thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate your time, your story, and I'm sure the listeners will enjoy this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for um, having me on the show.